We'll turn back to Mark. And we are on the tail end now of a short series that we're doing in Mark called The Ruler Who Serves. This is sermon number three. And this is entitled, Jesus and Your Weakness. Jesus and Your Weakness. And I guess when we think about weakness, we probably think about physical ailments, right? And you certainly see that in the passage that Abby read for us earlier. You see people there who were chronically ill. I'm sure some of those people were probably terminally ill. And they met with Jesus that day, and they were forever changed. They needed healing, they were helpless, they needed Jesus, and He met them in their time of weakness. But listen, there's other kinds of weaknesses, too, that we encounter in life, not just as unbelievers, but as believers, as God's people, redeemed, blood-bought Christians who belong into the family of God. We still have forms of weakness that aren't always physical. Sometimes they're more spiritual or even mental at times. And the thing I want to talk about today is doubt. Doubt. Doubt is a form of weakness. And listen, doubt can be extremely stubborn. Extremely stubborn. It can follow you, plague you, vex you, um, assault you when you least expect it. It's really incredible to see the, the role that doubt plays in us as Christians sometimes. And I was thinking of a comparison this week because I read one of the most fascinating articles I've ever read on bed bugs. Yeah, I know. Ooh, gross, disgusting. Um, something that's, that's gross to think about or talk about. But listen to this. You may not know this. In 2010, New York City experienced one of the worst infestations of bed bugs that that city had ever known. You know, New York City, it's the hub of America. It's a commercial. People there are sophisticated, they're refined, they're cultured. And then, bam, bed bugs. And listen, bed bugs attacked some of the most distinguished and famous places in New York. It was very embarrassing for the city, for the mayor, for the whole town. It attacked Bloomingdale's department clothing store. They had an infestation there. The Google headquarters in New York City, fourth floor, bedbugs. Abercrombie & Fitch and Hollister, their partnering teenage division, bedbugs everywhere. Victoria's Secret, bedbugs. No comment on that, okay? That's the secret you definitely want to keep if you have bed bugs in your clothing store. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Wall Street Journal, Broadway Theater, everywhere. In fact, it got so bad that they recorded up to 25,000 uh, individual and independent complaints from major places, major players, movers and shakers in the city. And so the mayor there, Bloomberg, had to do something. And so he established this council, this advisory board, that consisted of experts on insects. One of those experts' names was Dr. Richard Cooper. He had a PhD in, I won't even say this right, being the redneck that I am, um, entomology, which is the study of insects. And he wrote his thesis on the control of bedbugs and multifamily housing. He literally wrote the handbook on bedbugs. And so they got him, and he headed up this council, and they said, what in the world are we going to do about this problem? We don't know anything about these insects, but they're very pesty, and we can't get rid of them. What do we do? And so he had over two decades of experience, and he had grown to know these bloodsuckers very well. I don't know if you know this about bedbugs. They're actually parasites. I think they're insects that were spawned from hell, because if you think about it, they come out at night, they suck your blood, and you don't know they're there. They're hard to detect. They're hard to get rid of. They're resistant to any form of pesticide. They can survive for up to a year without food of any kind. They can survive high temperature. They can survive low temperature. They can creep into your house and you never know they're there until it's too late, quote unquote. They hide in your luggage. 
They hide in your bed. This is a terrible reality, isn't it? In fact, I'll, I'll tell you the truth, guys. This is honest truth. Last night, you know, the time change and whatever devices you have up there. I was so confused, and I was reading that article, and I went to bed and started filling things on me. <laughs> Something crawled across my face, and I went, ah, and I swatted it on the ground. I got my flashlight out. I put it in a Ziploc bag, and in the morning, Sarah got up, and I said, we got bed bugs. It's a bed bug. She said, no, it's not. That's not a bed bug, and it wasn't, thank God. It would have been okay if it would have. God's grace would have been sufficient. But this is just icky thinking about this. But listen, bed bugs and doubt have a lot in common that you may not know. We're going to talk about miracles this morning. We're going to talk about these particular miracles that we read in this passage, and we're going to talk about what does God do about our doubt? What has God provided? What means of help has He given us um, to assault our doubt? And, and I think one of the chief things He gave us, tools, devices, in the Bible is actually the miracles of Jesus. Okay, and so we're going to talk about miracles, and I just want to make sure we're going to be on the same page. We're using the same dictionary, so when I say miracle, I mean this, a supernatural act of God that magnifies Jesus. Very simple. That's what I mean when I say miracles, and I think that's consistent with what the Bible means. Ron Dunn gave another definition, um, old Southern Baptist preacher that I love listening to. He said, a miracle is God doing that which only God can do. Amen. That's what a miracle is. So let's, let's get the next slide. So... On to bed bugs, okay? Bed bugs and doubt have a lot in common. They attack when you're vulnerable, right? When you are at your most vulnerable position, you're curled up in a fetal position, you're sucking your thumb, you're, you're, out, of, uh, you're, you're out of consciousness, whatever, and then they creep up on you and, and they attack you. They can survive in any condition. They're hard to detect. They're indiscriminate about their victims. One of the things that Dr. Richard Cooper found about how these insects survive so well is that there's this myth that they only attack people that are living in slum-like and homeless conditions and dirty. That's not true at all. In fact, one of the ways that bed bugs get into your house and into your bed and into your bloodstream is through international travel. And a lot of poor people can't travel internationally. The wealthy people, the powerful people, they're all over the world. They come home, they, they unpack their luggage on their bed, and bam, they got bed bugs. So there was a lot of myths floating around, and all the wealthy people thought, well, we'll never have bed bugs, and they all got bed bugs. Bloomingdale, all those places got them. So they're indiscriminate about their victims. They don't care if you're poor, if you're rich, if you're pretty, if you're ugly, if you're fat, if you're skinny, and doubt doesn't either, okay? Doubt doesn't care who you are, what level of Christian you consider yourself to be. Another moment of confession. I was in seminary, one of the best seminaries in the world, and for about a week, I don't know why, I don't know where this doubt came from. I'm in a seminary that teaches the authority of the Word of God. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's, it, it comes with the full authority of God. And I began to doubt the virgin birth. came out of nowhere. It just assaulted me. And I couldn't say, well, just stop it. Just stop doubting that. I couldn't. For like a week, I wrestled with it. I wrestled with it, and God was gracious to me. But here I am at a seminary, reading Scripture, translating Greek and Hebrew, training to be a pastor and shepherd people, and I'm doubting the virgin birth. Where'd that come from? I don't know, but doubt assaults pastors and scholars uh, and lay people too. It's indiscriminate, just like these bedbugs. A lot of stigma and shame associated with bedbugs. Ain't nobody saying nothing. <laughs> It's kind of like lice. The first year that our kids were in public school, they came home with a gift. <laughs> and it was lice. And I want to tell you, I was humiliated. I didn't want to tell anybody about it. And people with bed bugs don't either. If you have bed bugs, don't tell anybody because ain't nobody going to come to your house. Okay? Ever, probably. There's a stigma, there's a shame, and the same thing's true of doubt. Who do you think I told 
in that seminary, my colleagues, that I was struggling with the virgin birth. Who do you think I told? Nobody. I told God, and he helped me. Because if I would have told anybody else, I would have got called. Probably, I don't know, I probably got called in an office and dealt with. Um, and here's the biggest thing, guys. What happens when you ignore bed bugs and lice and weeds and anything else that assaults you in this fallen world? What happens? They get worse. What happens when you just ignore doubt? It's going to grow, it's going to fester, it's going to multiply, and it's going to take over your life and hijack your faith. That's what's going to happen when you ignore it. It's a big problem. It really is. Bed bugs and doubt, they're a lot alike. So this Richard, Dr. Richard Cooper, uh, he, w- he was uh, invited to be on this council, and this is what he said. He was, in, he, he was asked, what do you think of these, these bed bugs? And he said this, I'm fascinated by them. <laughs> I respect them. They have extraordinary strategies for succeeding. That's interesting to hear a guy that devoted two decades of his life to say these creatures absolutely fascinate me and I respect them and they have extraordinary strategies for survival, for success. And he's right, they do. So I want to ask you this, if we all have doubts, Christians have doubts, pastors have doubts, we don't want to talk about it, we don't want to deal with it, maybe the church is an unfriendly place and feels unwelcome for people that have doubts, what extraordinary strategy do we have to overcome that doubt? Because we better have one. We need to have one. Amen? Sometimes doubt can be a very powerful place for you to grow and blossom into something beautiful. Some of the most notorious doubters became some of the most profound confessors of Christ. Do you know one of the first times in the New Testament that somebody called Jesus Lord? Do you know who it was? Who was it? Doubting Thomas. I get that name, don't I? I'm Doubting Thomas, Tom Fullery, Peeping Tom. I get all those names attached to me. But Thomas's doubt turned into one of the most glorious confessions of the identity of Christ in the entire New Testament. And I love that. You see it in the Old Testament too, some of the psalmists. You know, there's, there's two or three ways you can deal with doubt. One, you can vent your spleen and tell the whole world about it and hold up a sign that says doubt is beautiful, question everything. That's wrong. Two, you can hide it, you can suppress it, you can put a cork on, on the bottle. That's wrong too. There's a middle way, there's a third way, and that is you process your, your, your doubt in the presence of God, and, and that's what I hope to tell you to do by uh, looking specifically at the miracles of Jesus. Spurgeon said this about doubt. I love this. When we doubt, Jesus isn't surprised. Look, look at this. Spurgeon said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it's quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, Ah, poor soul, I am afraid you are not on the road at all. For if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say this is too good to be true. Which is a form of doubt, is it not? This Christianity thing is too good to be true. That's a form of doubt. Spurgeon said the gospel sometimes has that effect, has that impact on people. So you say, is doubt really that bad? Is it really that serious? Well, listen to this. Barna Research shows that one of the top six reasons that young people leave the church is, drumroll please, it's unfriendly to doubters. Doubters aren't welcome. We can't help you. In other words, we don't talk about our doubts here. We just all put on a smile and we say, stop it. Don't talk about it. Just shut up and sit down and listen. (laughs) That's what a lot of churches do. Is that a strategy for success? No, that's a categorical failure strategy, if you ask me. So Jesus isn't surprised when we doubt. And what has he done about it? He has 
given us a book that's supernatural, that's filled and documented with things that combat and attack our doubt. You know, doubt is really easy to introduce to somebody, but it's really hard to overcome. That's why the Bible gives all these warnings about causing one of these little ones, which means a new believer with a sensitive, impressionable mind. You introduce doubt to them. It's better, Jesus says, to have a millstone tied around your neck and drown in the ocean. That's better for you. Doubt's easy to introduce. It's like bed bugs. Just throw a few larvae on the bed and they're there. There's nothing you can do at times to get rid of them. So, why did Jesus perform miracles? Why did Jesus perform miracles? To create faith? If that was his motive, then it didn't work, did it? <laughs> miracles don't create faith. Look at all the miracles that thousands of people witnessed in the Bible, and many of them, many of them became hardened in their hearts. Was it to show off? Ta-da, watch me pull this rabbit out of my hat. No, it wasn't that either, because the kinds of miracles he did um, weren't like comic Marvel book superhero kind of stuff. No, I think it was to combat doubt. I think it was to strengthen faith that he had already produced in people by his Holy Spirit's power. That's what I think it was. And you can see this in some of the uh, teachings that surround his miracles. For example, he cast out demons and Jesus said this, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, don't you love that? Just with my little bitty pinky, I'll cast out these demonic horde of legions from hell. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, I am who I say I am. And the reason you know that is because look what I did. I have authority over these supernatural creatures because I created them. I created them perfect and upright. They rebelled. And now I still control them. I have power over them. He said this when a man was brought to him who was paralyzed. He said, so that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a name he gave to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins, I, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. Remember that? He said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? That was kind of a test, wasn't it? And Jesus said both. He said, you know I am who I said I am because I can heal his paralysis instantly. And he did. When Lazarus died, Jesus says, I'm glad that he died and that I wasn't here for your sake so that you may believe. In other words, so that your doubt may be eradicated and evaporated forever and disappear. And there's one more in John 10. He's arguing with the Pharisees and he says, if you don't believe my words, at least believe the works that I do in my Father's name because they bear witness of me. So miracles attack and assault doubt. And there's three points today. Three points uh, in this sermon. Three doubts that miracles attack. So what three doubts that we have as Christians that we don't really want to talk about, we're embarrassed about them, we keep them on the wraps, what doubts do we have that the miracles assault and attack? Three. One, is Jesus really God? Is he really who he says he is? Can I trust him? Is this Christianity thing just made up? Am I just believing this because I was born into a Christian family? Am I a cultural Christian? Does God really love me and care about me? Is there really a heaven? Is there really an afterlife? Really, all those are included. But three, is Jesus really God? Does Jesus really care? And will things ever change? Is Jesus really God? Does Jesus really care? And will things ever change? So, point number one, is Jesus really God? Now, you look at this passage here, and I know that at, at surface glance, you're like, there's nothing really... We're in Mark's gospel. It's an incredible gospel. It's an action gospel. It was written for Gentiles. It was written for Roman Gentiles who are drunk with power. They're obsessed with authority. That's why the Gospel of Mark doesn't have a whole lot of teaching in it. If you have a red-letter edition Bible that records all the words of Jesus, there's not a lot of red ink in Mark's Gospel, is there? 
It's mostly black ink because it's showing you that Jesus is the Son of God. It's showing you what kind of son he is. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of deeds. um, But there's very little teaching. So Mark's gospel is showing you that there's unmistakable evidence, there's overwhelming evidence, there's compelling evidence that Jesus is a unique human being unlike any human being we've ever seen before. And these miracles we see here are just a small window uh, into a bigger picture of what Jesus is hoping to accomplish when he came to earth. He's showing that not only is he God, but what kind of God he is. I read a book when I was in seminary, and this helped me when I struggled. It was a sign reading, and it was called Putting Jesus in His Place. i got a picture of the book up here. Um, You can get this book online. There's a free PDF version if you want it. Um, So don't buy the thing. You can get it free. I don't know if that's legal or not, but I found a free copy of it. So anyway, Google your heart out, okay, and give that up to God. (laughs) Um, But it's a great book, and it's one of the best books that I've ever read on, on how do you prove to somebody using the Bible that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. And it's got an, a really helpful acrostic in there. Next slide. And, and it's, it uses the word hands. Hands. And it's easy to remember, and I've been waiting to unleash this on somebody that comes to my door for like five years, and I, nobody's ever came to my door. So um, here's the acrostic. How do we know that Jesus is God and God's Son? Well, hands. Honor, attributes, names, deeds, and seats. Jesus receives worship. That's a little bit strange, isn't it? If you're not God... If you're not God, but you believe the Bible and you believe that idolatry is a sin and you let people worship you, yeah, Jesus received the honor that only God has. Jesus possessed the attributes that only God possesses. He could predict the future. He could read men's thoughts, right? He was omniscient. He was omnipresent. All those attributes uh, Jesus possessed that God possessed. The names of Jesus. He possessed the names. Emmanuel, God with us, and all the other names that he possessed. The Messiah. The deeds, Jesus did things that only God himself could do. That's the big one we all talk about. And then the seat, Jesus, all throughout the Bible, all the metaphors for him, especially in Revelation, what's his chair? What kind of chair is it? It's a throne because he's king, because he's God. It's a wonderful and helpful acrostic. Um, If you're ever in a conversation with somebody, hands, honor, attribute, names, deeds, and seat. And that book was really helpful to me. Um... Because it just proves that Jesus made radical claims, didn't he? He made radical claims about his identity. He came uh, with with mighty power. He was a prophet mighty in word, but also a prophet mighty in deed. Um, Dick Lucas was a British pastor, and he was talking to a skeptic that came up to him. And the skeptic said this, If I had a watertight existence of God, if I had a watertight argument for the existence of God, I would believe. And Dick Lucas came back, And he said, what if you didn't have a watertight argument? What if God didn't give you a watertight argument for the existence of God? What if he gave you a watertight person? Then would you believe? Because Jesus, in and of himself, in his very essence, is proof uh, that he's God. This is, John MacArthur said this once. I've always loved this. Check this out. He said, what if God became a man? Well, we would expect him to have a unique and miraculous entrance into this world. The virgin birth, the incarnation. And Jesus did. If God became a man, we would expect him to be sinless, to live a godly life, and to perfectly obey his Father. Jesus did. If God became a man, we would anticipate that his words would be the clearest, most authoritative, most authoritative, truest, and purest words ever spoken. Jesus' words were. No man spoke like him, right? If God became a man, we would expect him to manifest supernatural power. Jesus did that. 
If God became a man, we would expect Him to have a universal and permanent influence on men's lives. Jesus did that. If God became a man, we would expect Him to have power over death. Jesus had that. If God became a man, Jesus is God. I've always loved that because that's exactly what Dick Lucas was saying. There's no watertight argument for the existence of God. There's a watertight person, and it's Jesus. And He came proving that He is, in fact, God's Son. Do you remember whenever John the Baptist was thrown in prison before he was beheaded, obviously, and he began to think and he began to question, man, I'm in here. I'm I'm being persecuted. I'm being oppressed. I better make sure that Jesus is who he says he is because this isn't what I was expecting. Remember, he sent a delegation of his disciples. They went to Jesus and they said, hey, look, John wants to know, are you the Messiah or should we expect somebody else? And you remember Jesus' answer? He didn't say anything at first. He began healing people. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? They're like, are you Jesus? And he goes, one second. And he he restored the sight of a blind man. And and a man that was lame, he gave him the power to walk. And a man who was dead, he raised from the grave, Lazarus. And then Jesus said, you go and you tell John, I give sight to the blind, the lame walk again, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, demons are cast out, and blessed is the man who is not offended on my account. So all those credentials that Jesus gave, and by the way, that's what this first point deals with. Is Jesus really God? That deals with his credibility. Jesus gave all these credentials, right? All these airtight demonstrations that he was in fact God. And listen, these miracles, like the one we just read about, this section that Abby read earlier, these were done in, out in plain open with thousands of spectators. Jesus didn't do these things hidden in a corner somewhere. Okay, There was an open invitation to attend all that he did, with few exceptions like the disciples in the boat that we talked about last week. In fact, did you know that the four documents we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, within 40 years of Jesus dying, resurrecting, and ascending to heaven, within 40 years those were circulating, those documents, all over the Mediterranean, all over Palestine. People were reading them and hearing them orally everywhere. Now let me ask you a question. We studied last week that Jesus created bread out of thin air, basically, out of some crackers. And he created fish from two sardines, enough to feed up to 20,000 people, okay? If you were one of those people who were there, and that was a hoax, it didn't really happen, and within a few years you're reading the circulation of this miracle that happened, and you were there, wouldn't you protest it? Yes, you would. And that document would never get off the ground, and Christianity would never launch, But that didn't happen because Jesus is exactly who he said he is. He's God in the flesh, and he did those miracles, and thousands of people witnessed this. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians at the very end, chapter 15, he said this. He said, Jesus appeared from the grave, he rose from the dead, and he appeared to over, remember this, 500 people. (laughs) Did you know that? Children, I'm talking to you too. Christianity has credibility, unlike any other document or religion you've ever seen. You know what Paul's doing when he wrote 1 Corinthians? Those people were still alive. He said Jesus appeared to over 500 people who are still alive to this day. You know what he's saying? Go ask them. (laughs) There's 500 people walking around the city of Jerusalem who saw Jesus, who weren't one of the disciples. Go and talk to them. There's credibility. Everything Jesus did, all of his miracles, it's pretty amazing. So that's the first point. Point number two. Okay, I get it, Pastor. Jesus is God. He is who he says he is. Uh, But what kind of God is he? Because I have doubts, does God really care about me? Right? Is God as compassionate as they say he is? How can I know that? Well, check this out. Here's the second point. Does God really care? Does God really care? Is God really good? Well, let's jump into the passage here. 
And I'm, this is the 5,000 view feed, okay? I'm not digging into every word and, and every sentence, parsing every verb. This is just backing up a little bit and looking at all the miracles of Jesus, specifically the miracles of healing. So check this out. When they had crossed over, verse 53, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him, that is Jesus, verse 55. And they ran about the whole region, and they began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. So just time out. Hit the pause button for a minute. This is before social media, obviously. This is before modern transportation. Um, they couldn't jump in their car. They couldn't text their buddy, hey, Jesus is here. You want to get healed? You know how long it probably took them to go and gather all their sick, crippled, paralyzed, terminally ill, chronically ill, all the people that had bed bugs, whatever it was. Do you know how long it probably took for them to go and gather all those people and bring them back? Hours. Hours. You know where Jesus was? You know what Jesus did? He was right there and he didn't go anywhere. He waited for them. He waited for every last person to go and fetch their sick, their afflicted, their dying, their wounded, and bring them back. And he touched every single one of them. Check this out. Look at the next verse. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him. That verb is in a tense that means they consistently, they begged him. They never stopped. I mean, Jesus is walking around, please, Lord, Savior, Messiah, please, please, Jesus. What were they asking? They implored him, they begged him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So what does this tell you? Did Jesus ever say no? Do you ever read that anybody came to Jesus and asked to be healed and Jesus said, no, I'm not going to heal you? Not one time. Guys, what does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about Jesus? Jesus had an open policy. And I mean, there were no conditions for this. He didn't say you've got to have faith. He didn't say you've got to have money. <laughs> Man, that's a whole other sermon. I don't want to touch that right now. But come on, guys. When you see all this stuff, some of this stuff on TV, and they require conditions, they do screening... <laughs> For the people that need to be healed, that is so bogus. Most of that is bogus. Most of it is bunk. Jesus didn't do any of that. He didn't say, we have to be grateful. You have to live an obedient life. You know, he healed 10 lepers. Lepers was a, terminally, was a terminal sickness, and it was a horrible disease to have. You literally died. Your flesh would drop off your body. You had deformities. You were contagious. Jesus healed 10 lepers. Can you imagine how grateful you would be if you had leprosy and Jesus healed you and only one of them came back and thanked him and the other nine went on their way? Now, if I would have been Jesus, <laughs> I think I would have taken my miracle back, <laughs> you know, because I can't stand ungratefulness. I got five kids. I can't stand. That's one of my pet peeves is ungratefulness. But God is so patient, isn't he? And merciful. There were no conditions. He didn't say, I'm going to do this miracle, but you've got to get down on your hands and your knees and grovel in the dirt and thank me. Not once did he ever say that. Jesus healed people who would never believe, and he knew that. He fed people. He multiplied the loaves and the fish for people that the next day would be offended to him and depart and never follow him again. He had an open policy to all. He never turned anybody away. And listen, this was a time when medical advancements, there weren't, there weren't any. They couldn't even heal a fever. You just had to pray to God and just cross your fingers. The life expectancy for a person in Palestine in the first century was 35 years. You had a midlife crisis if you were a teenager. <laughs> Did you get that? You weren't expected to live very long. Illness, sickness, death was everywhere. It was everywhere. And Jesus never turned anybody away, ever. 
So what's the point? Jesus is a God to whom you can come for anything, for any reason, and even bring your doubts and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He never turns anybody away ever. He's the great shepherd. He's the compassionate Lord. He had an open policy. He can be sought anywhere, anytime, by anyone. He could then, he can now. Are you seeking him? For whatever thing you think is going to pester, he's not going to roll his eyes at you. He's not going to grumble. I have an unbeliever in my life I've been praying for for three years, and they still come to me and say, oh God, does God, I don't want to bother God. Just to say you're not bothering God. He lives to serve helpless people. He gets glory from it. That's what worship is. You read the whole book of Psalms and it's needy people begging God to help them. That's worship. You get help, God gets glory. It's a great trade-off. He can be sought anywhere, anytime. Jesus went around preaching about the kingdom of God and then performing miracles to show you what kind of kingdom this was. How do we know that God is compassionate? One of my favorite places to shop... No, 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 that's the wrong word. One of my favorite places to browse... <laughs> is a place in where I live in downtown, beautiful, historic downtown Delanta, and it's called Anna Bananas. How many people have heard of it? Awesome. You've got to go there, guys, but don't bring money. And you may not want to bring your wife. I'm just telling you, okay? This is not, I'm sorry, I shouldn't strike that from the record. Um, it's just so many cool stuff that women like to buy there, okay? But I don't shop there because it's too expensive. I can't afford any of the stuff there. In fact, I got it. Yeah, there it is. It's family-owned and operated, and I get no uh, money for this endorsement, okay? It's family-owned and operated, and this is what they do there. Next slide. They recycle, they repurpose, and they reclaim old stuff. And they turn it into, like, new stuff. They've been doing that for since 2010 when they opened. Next slide. They turn doors into shelves. They turn windows into dressers. Can you see that? They turn a, a card catalog in the library into, uh, I don't know what they turn it into, but Dewey Decimal probably rolled over in his grave when they did it. There's a bicycle up there, but that's not a bicycle. That's a planter. You know what they do there? They repurpose things. They reclaim things. They recycle things, and they repurpose things. What does that mean? That means they, they turn things that were once used for this into this. So you don't go to Anna Bananas to get a door that you walk through into your house and install it. No, you go to get a door that's a decorative item. You don't go to, to Anna Bananas to get a window that you look through. You go to get a window and you pay a lot of money for it that you look at. See, this is what they do. They repurpose, they reclaim, they recycle. But here's my question. What about restoration? That's hard to do, isn't it? When you restore something, you don't repurpose it. You fix it so that it can do what it was intended to do until it was broken, right? Now follow me here, okay? Restoring something is very challenging and very difficult. Now, I'm a carpenter. Before I was a pastor, and I still play around with it a little bit. And I can tell you this, no offense to anybody in here who's, who's, who's a carpenter, demolition is the first thing that I, that I did when I became a carpenter. I painted and I did demo, demolition. I destroyed stuff. My boss would say, look, we're going to remodel or rebuild this. You need to tear the old one down. And, I, and, and look, honestly, all I needed was a hammer in about 30 minutes. And I was a young teenager, and I loved it. It was easy. It didn't take a lot of skill. It didn't take a lot of time. It was messy. But just about anybody can do demo if you have the strength and the time, right? Um, building something new. Yeah, it takes a little more skill. You've got to know what you're doing. 
Um, but it's, there's, there's still a level of ease with that because you don't have any real guidelines. You can do whatever you want. You can create it however you want. But I would submit to you this. Restoring something, remodeling something, renovating something is very time-consuming. It's very costly. You can't go in there with a hammer swinging it. You've got to know what you're doing. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience, a lot of tenderness, because you'll break it. Um, and it takes a, a lot of cost. It's very costly to restore something. You say, why are you telling me this? I'm telling you this because these miracles that Jesus did, they show that Jesus is in the business of restoration. He's in the business of restoration. He goes around, and there's these, we live in a fallen planet because of what sin did, and things are broken. They fall apart. Our bodies, our relationships, our families, our marriages, our parenting, our churches, and Jesus restores them. And that's miraculous. Jesus does that, and that is miraculous. He doesn't repurpose them. He doesn't, a human being was created to glorify God, to serve, to flourish, to thrive, to love people, to love God. And Jesus doesn't change that purpose. He restores people to that purpose, starting on the inside. And miracles are just a little window, just a little glimpse into that. You say, well, what's that got to do with your second point, that we know God's compassionate? Because God doesn't go around and just snap people. You know, one of the greatest descriptions of Jesus is in Matthew chapter 12, and it's from Isaiah, the Old Testament, chapter 42, and it says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering, uh, a smoldering, man, I always forget that word, what's a candle thing? A wick, yeah. A smoldering wick, he won't snuff it out. So what's that mean? It's saying people that are teeter-tottering, they're fragile, they're broken, they're hopeless. They're at the end of the rope. Jesus doesn't go up and go, man, I got no use for you. Nobody can do anything to help you. No, 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 my friends. Those are the people that Jesus was most drawn to. He was attracted to need. As Ray uh, Ortland says, Jesus is wonderfully attracted to need. He was then and he is now. And what does that tell us? That God is a, is a God of compassion. Find me any other any other religious leader or God or deity or God or goddess or hero in Marvel Comics that has that trait? You won't find any. No, weak people, they have no time for them. They have no patience for Him. They have no place for them. Jesus is in the business of restoration. That's what He does. He, re, he doesn't repurpose us. He restores us. You say, why does He do that? Because we're the apple of His eye. Do you know that's what the Bible says about you and I? We are His treasure. We are the apple of His eye. We are His redeemed possession. He came and He ransomed us at a high price. And look, He's not willing to turn loose of us. We're not for sale. There, the price tag on us, could nobody afford it. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Nothing. There's a, a wonderful text tucked away in Isaiah 43. I want to show this to you. Check this out. This is verses 1 through 7, but I've shortened it a little bit, okay? Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Man, I love that. When I'm going through a hard time, that's my text. That I will text to you if you text me and say, I'm struggling. I'll text you this right here. I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Have you ever just wanted God to, to declare that over your life? You are precious to me. I love you. I will honor you. I've redeemed you. You belong to me. Jesus came proving that he was that God. You belong to me. I've ransomed you. Nobody can touch you. I will say to the north, give up. 
And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Jesus is not going to repurpose you. He's going to restore you because that's what you were created to do and sin has broken us and we can't do it and we won't do it. And Jesus came and he's on a restoration project. He's not doing demolition. He's not doing new construction. He's not starting with a blank slate. He's taking pre-existent material, us, which is harder to do. It would be easier if he just wiped the slate clean and started over, but he doesn't. He takes us and he restores us. Isn't that amazing? And he's going to do that with the entire planet. He's going to restore it. He gets more glory when he takes something that's already there and, and does a restoration job on it. Man, I hope this is getting through. Everybody's really quiet today. Are you thinking about the pizza? Stop that. Think about this. <laughs> All right, moving along here. Jesus is on a restoration project. And, and listen, none of the miracles in the Bible were haphazard. None of them were just raw, naked displays of power. You realize that? I mean, seriously, guys, if I were God and I came in human flesh, I want to tell you right now, I'd be showing off. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be bothering myself with healing people that were already broken. I'd be doing some incredible stuff that would make Marvel Comics look like kindergarten. I'd be flying around. I'd be picking up mountains and tossing them into the ocean. He could have done all that. Jesus could have. But listen, all of his miracles were redemptive. Every single miracle that Jesus ever performed was redemptive. In fact, the ones he was tempted to do by the devil were just show-offs. Remember in the wilderness, the devil said, Hey, hey, Jesus, if you're God's son, jump off that cliff and right before you hit the ground say, Ta-da! And Jesus said, No, I'm not doing that. He said, Okay, well, if you're hungry, turn this rock into bread. And Jesus said, That's self-centered. I'm not doing that. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, no, my, my miracles are very strategic. They're very purposeful. They're very intentional. I came to prove to people what kind of God I am. I'm the God who restores. I'm the God who has compassion. No other God like that in the history of the world. Jesus came to relieve human suffering. That's why he came. Jesus never said, hey, check this out. Watch this, guys. He never did that. That, that would be this kind of God. You don't find that kind of Jesus in the Bible, right? That's the kind of God we would expect if we were a Roman Gentile. And Jesus came, and, and he didn't do stuff like that. He didn't fly. That's what I would do. I would fly around and show off, and Jesus didn't. He came to meet a specific need with specific people. In fact, do you remember? I love, I love uh, all these movies that come out, if they're clean, you know, about superheroes. And one of my favorites was Superman. And I think it was part two. Do you remember part, back in the 70s? Part two in Superman, do you remember uh, Clark Kent fell in love? You remember this? And he fell in love with Lois Lane, the reporter from the Daily Planet. And Superman had a pretty serious choice to make, didn't he? He was supernatural. He was immortal. And here's this lady that he fell in love with, and she was just this weak creature. You know, She would die, and he would be left alone for the rest of his life if he married her. So Superman had a decision to make. You remember what it was? He could either re reject her love and go on about his business rescuing the world, or he could become vulnerable. He could become killable. <laughs> he could become a creature just like Lois Lane. You remember that? I don't know that I put all those pieces together when I was little, but now that I reflect on it, that's a really profound theme in that movie. And that's exactly what he did. He went up to the north, wherever his secret chamber was, and he went through the zzz, the little machine, and da-da, Superman uh, was a, a normal human being. And he could bleed. 
And he could get punched, and he did get punched. He got his lights, you know, knocked out by some trucker at a greasy joint. You remember that? He became vulnerable. He became killable. Why? Because he, he wanted to make this, this creature his bride. And man, there's a theme there, isn't there? Isn't that exactly what Jesus did? Jesus, the immortal being, the beautiful pre-existent God from all eternity, he left his palace for a stall, and he came down and he became vulnerable, he became killable, he subjected himself to time, space, affliction, suffering, he crawled into, inside a human body and entered this, this cursed world, why? Because he found a bride that he treasured and that he wanted to make his own, and it came at a great cost to him. And look, you're not going to find that kind of hero in any Marvel comic books or in any uh, hero movie. I guess Superman will be the closest you would find. That's Christianity. That's what the gospel teaches us. Listen, leaders are tempted. Most good leaders are tempted either to withdraw to safety or to, uh, to, to clamor for power. And look what Jesus did. He did the opposite of both of those. He gave up power to come and serve humanity and he became vulnerable and he became weak so that we could become strong. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's why this is the Jesus that you'll never find in a Marvel comic book, right? Can't make any money on that, kind of, on that kind of hero, can you? Well, here's the third thing. And man, we're running out of time. You guys got to listen faster. Point three, here's the, the third doubt that people have. Will things ever change? Are things always going to be this way? Sickness, suffering, corruption, decay, injustice, inequality. You look around the world, it makes you want to throw up. And then you look at your own heart, and it makes you want to throw up, doesn't it? We're weak. We use people. We talk too much. We're self-centered. We gossip. That's just one day. (laughs) I mean, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. Politicians and religious leaders. You see, the planet doesn't work right. Animals attack it. My pet rabbit bit me yesterday. I'm not kidding. I'm holding that little stinker, petting him, and he out of nowhere went, ah! And bit me on the neck. I'm thinking the whole planet's broken. What's going on here? Do you know what miracles do? You know what they prove to us? I'm not being facetious. Miracles prove to us things aren't always going to be this way. In fact, everywhere Jesus went, every miracle he did, he was bringing heaven with him and opening up a little window into glory, showing you this is what the new heavens is going to be like. Because what did Jesus say? He said, behold, I make all things new. I'm restoring things. This is what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like one day. I would call all his miracles previews of coming attractions. They're like trailers. I don't know if you're like me. I've said this before. I love trailers. If, you, if we're going to the movies, don't make me late. I will be bitter and angry. I want to see every trailer there. I love previews. And that's what miracles are. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if I'm your king, this is the future you have waiting for you. New heavens, new earth, no disease, no sin, no conflict, no rabbits biting you, no bed bugs infesting your house. Everything will be new. Everything will be new. This is not all there is. Look, Jesus is fighting for his good creation. And miracles are just a small window into that. One day, I like what Ray Ortland says, one day we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth, and we'll, I'll look at you and I'll say, you know what was that thing we used to talk about? The, uh, what do we call it? Um, the sickness, the disease, cancer. Yeah, yeah, what happened to that? One day we're not going to have that anymore. We're not going to have terminal illnesses. In fact, the description of the new heavens and the new earth, and it's all over the Bible, one of my favorite descriptions, it says, behold. It says the, the wolf, the, the word in, in Hebrew is actually wolf, but I don't know how we've gotten to lamb. 
The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Now look, I can tell you right now that's photoshopped. <laughs> okay? Uh, one day it won't have to be. One day it won't have to be. It will be a reality. It says the cobra will play with the child. The child will stick his hand in the, in the cobra's den and won't be harmed. It says the leopard will lay down, will eat ox. <laughs> leopard will eat the, no, that's now. That leopard eats the ox. It will eat grass like an ox and a little child will lead them. One day the, the trees of the field will clap their hands. It says this. It says, one day the sower will overcome, the, excuse me, the reaper will overcome the sower. You know what that means? One day this curse is going to be removed completely because of what Christ did. You're planting crops and they don't die. They sprout up, they flourish. The whole earth will be productive and fruitful and will flourish again. It'll be like the Garden of Eden was supposed to be, but even better. There won't be any threats. See, because this is what people think. They think Jesus came along and miracles are like punctuation marks where there were periods before. But what if we're thinking about miracles wrong? What if instead of Jesus coming and doing miracles and invading this strange planet, uh, uh, what if miracles are actually what's supposed to be normal? How would you like to live in a world where the miracles of Jesus, that's normal life. Nobody's sick. Nobody has diseases. Nobody has a sinful heart. There's no relational conflicts of any kind. How would you like to live in a place like that forever? How would you like that? See, that's what Christianity promises, friends. I will tell you this. One of the hardest things I ever have to do as a pastor is go to somebody who has a terminal sickness when you've prayed for healing, you've prayed that God would just be merciful and would do a, a, just a miraculous work. And, and by all appearances, it, it seems that God has said no. And He's not going to heal them then. And they're going to die. They're going to pass away. They're a Christian. They're, they're, they're holding on to Christ as best they, can, best they can. But you sit beside them, you grab their hand, and you pray with them, and you cry with them. That's hard. And here's my question. Does Christianity have any good news for that person that's withering and languishing and about to cross the threshold of eternity and pass away? If Christianity, and if the gospel doesn't have any good news for them, then it's all bunk. And I want to tell you what the miracles tell us. Yes, we have good news for them. And I love it when I hear people say this. It's always awkward and you, and you don't want to say the wrong thing when somebody passes away. But I love it when I hear a close family member say this about a Christian who's died. They're finally healed. Because friends, that's the truth. That's the accurate way to view what happens to us when we cross from this threshold of eternity into the next is we will all be healed one day. All of us will be. It may not be when we want to be healed. But the gospel says we will all experience complete transformation and healing. We'll have minds that are sound. We'll have bodies that are fit. I can't wait to meet the new glorified Tommy Clayton in heaven. I'm probably not going to recognize him. You probably want to, but hey, I won't recognize you either. That'd be okay. You know, because listen, we're not human beings right now. We're human becomings. If you're a Christian, you're becoming something beautiful and something glorious. And that's called sanctification. God has set you apart and he's conforming you into the image of Christ. And miracles give you a little glimpse into the, the window of what you're going to be one day. Just to give you a glimmer of hope in this dark and fallen planet. One day, God's going to restore all of this. One day he is. And I can't wait. Jonathan Dodson said this. He said, when Jesus said, behold, I make all things new, he meant all things. The metaphor of new creation can be especially compelling and attractive for people who are longing for a new start in life. People whose lives have been littered with failure, scarred by abuse, humbled through suffering, or ruined by addiction. 
need the hope of becoming a new creation. That's what miracles do. They overturn that doubt. Are things going to be this way forever? No, they're not. Jesus is making all things new and the miracles prove it. They prove that Jesus is God. They prove that He is a God who has compassion. And they prove that He's going to change all this dark, uh, corrupt, marred, destroyed planet one day into something glorious. He's going to remove all sin. And that's really the, the whole point of this message. Is that How do you respond to this? How do you respond to a God like that? You follow Him. You say, Lord, You are more beautiful, You are more attractive than the things that I'm holding on to. And I want to follow You. I want to believe. How, how do you respond to that? You believe. You give your doubt to God and say, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to follow You. I want to turn from my sin. I want to become one of Your children. I want to know and experience this power, this love, this transformation. And you repent and you turn. That's what Jesus said. He came preaching. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the response to the good news. Is that you repent. That means you change. You turn. You give your sin to God and He gives you His perfect righteousness. And you become one of, your, one of His children. And you can never be separated from His love. That's the good news.